Oh, Father, what a simple little prayer. But how profound it's longing. Oh, how we want that peace. You're the only one who can give it. Please, Father, know our heart longing. On behalf of a world, our world, we pray your prayer. Grant us that peace. Through Jesus now we wait upon you in Holy Scripture. Amen. Have you noticed that it is one of the one of the tough realities of life, and that is practicing what you preach. Oh, that is not easy. I am never more embarrassed than when I am caught not practicing what I have preached. When I'm caught, I tell you what, I, I'm filled with shame. I'm filled with apology only when I'm caught. I'm filled with apology. And I am embarrassed. I am very embarrassed. I don't recall a time when we as Americans had been more embarrassed by the shameful disconnect between what we preach as a nation and what we have practiced in the last few days. The photographs of Iraqi prisoners in a Baghdad prison forced into grotesque and naked poses at the behest of grinning American male and female military police has surely literally turned our national collective stomach, has it not? The international furor, the Islamic fury over such blatant military misbehavior, though we may declare their reaction a bit hypocritical, nevertheless is justly deserved. And the president's unprecedented and almost mea culpa on Arab satellite television this last Wednesday reflected his own utter disgust and chagrin. Surely thinking people recognize that this reprehensible behavior is not representative behavior no matter whether they were following orders or not. Our mothers were right from the very beginning. We should have listened to them. One rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. One of the tough realities of life is practicing what you preach, isn't it? Did Jesus, did Jesus practice what He preached? And will the answer to that question help us at all in knowing how to respond to the war in Iraq and the war at home? May I place before your prayerful examination this morning six exhibits. I want you to... Please, ponder these six. Exhibit A. You'll need your study guide for the, these exhibits, please. Exhibit A. There's a study guide in your worship bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin when you came in or there's too many of you for one bulletin, our ushers are ready to put one in your hand. Just hold your hand up. I want to make sure everybody in the, everybody in the orchestra has the study guides. Thank you for taking those out now. Those of you watching on television, if you will go to our website, pmchurch.tv. You come to our series called The Christ of the Passion. 
Click on to that series, The Christ of the Passion. Then drop down to The Passion of the Pacifist. Click on there and the study guide that we are about to fill in together. You'll have on your computer screen. You can fill it in or print it off and you will be in the thick with us in this Bible teaching today. Exhibit A. Let's notice what Jesus preached. Six exhibits. You examine them for yourself. You come to your own conclusions. Exhibit A, what did Jesus preach? Would you fill it in, please? Matthew 5, you have to write the verses in in order for the study guide to be complete for you. Write in verses 38 through 39, all right? Matthew 5, 38 through 39. Let's read from the great Sermon on the Mount, these words of Christ. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but... I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the also. All right, that's what Jesus preached. In fact, would you write it in, please? Would you write it in your study guide? He preached, turn the other cheek. He preached that. Did he practice what he preached? Would you also write, write in this reference, please? Matthew 26, write in verses 67 and 68. 67 and 68, how do they read? Let's put it on the screen. Then they spit in Jesus' face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you now? Huh? 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 Did he practice what he preached? Exhibit B. Would you fill it in, please, in your, in your study guide? That would be Matthew 5. Write verses 43 through 48 there. Another well-known teaching from the... Great Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, let's read those words. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, are not even the tax collectors doing that? Come on. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Bottom line, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's he preaching there? Write it in, please. Love and pray for your enemy. Love and pray for your enemy. Did Jesus practice what he preached? Yeah, jot it down, please. Let's write in the verses to Luke 23, verses 33 and 34. Luke 23. And what's the record? And when they came to the place called the skull, that would be Golgotha in the Aramaic, there they crucified Jesus along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Did Jesus practice what he preached? Exhibit C. Write it in, please. Let's put another line. From, now, this is Dr. Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. Would you write in verse 27 to the famous Luke chapter 6? Write in verse 27. What's it read? Jesus speaking, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. What did Jesus preach? Write it in, please. Do good to those who hate you. Did Jesus practice what he preached. Write it in, please. Luke 22, verse 51. A snippet out of that faithful Thursday night. But Jesus answered, No more of this. 
And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, I want to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that the man who had his ear cut off is a part of a midnight posse and a kangaroo court. He is not a friend of Jesus. He is an enemy of Jesus. And if Jesus should have, could have said, you know what? It's your problem you're out in this garden. You just live without an ear. He could have said it that night, but he did not. He hurries over and he does good to a man who hates him. Did Jesus practice what he preached? Go to Exhibit D, if you're still not certain. Exhibit D, fill it in, please. Matthew 5, just one line. We don't think of this line very often, but let's put it up. Matthew 5, 37. How does that go from the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, simply let your yes be yes, and your no, just be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What is, what is he preaching here? Write it in, please. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. No diatribe. I don't need any arguing. You just let it be yes or no. Did he practice what he preached? Exhibit D. Let's put it up on the screen, please. Would you write it in? Matthew 26, 62 through 64. Let's just read that. There are three verses here, but let's read this. Then the high priest stood up and he said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Christ can no longer remain silent. You've just appealed to my father and I will have to speak now. I charge you. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yes. And by the way, one day you will see me coming on the clouds at the right hand of power. And you will know then, yes! Did Jesus practice what he preached? Two more. Exhibit E. Would you fill it in, please? John 18:36. Under interrogation. We read it just a moment ago with Joni. Our scripture today, John 18, 36, right in the 36, please. Pilate's interrogation. And Jesus said back to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. What is that teaching? Write it in, please. My servants do not fight. Did Jesus practice what He preached? Let's put what He practiced. Same chapter, John 18, right in verse 11. What's going on now? Ah, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. I'm not here to fight. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Put that sword away. Did Jesus practice what He preached? One more exhibit. Maybe this will tilt. Exhibit F. Matthew 5, write it in please, verse 9. The familiar Beatitudes, that single Beatitude that reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children, the sons and daughters of God. What did Jesus preach? Write it in please. Blessed are the peacemakers. Did Jesus practice what He preached? Come on, we've already had five exhibits. Do they, are, are they not sufficient to prove He is indeed a peacemaker? In fact, is He not fulfilling? Write it in your study guide, please. The great Isaiah Messianic prophecy. 
Isaiah 9, verse 6. How, how does that go? We learned it from the King James, did we? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And by the way, apparently Jesus' followers got it. For after He left... Over and over, four of his followers insert it into their writings. Let's look at the first one here. Jesus' stepbrother James, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's look at Paul, Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's look at Hebrews. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Not to be left out, Peter who flailed his sword. Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, for whoever would love life, And see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Six compelling exhibits that reveal that indeed Jesus did practice what he preached. A composite of those six exhibits give us the passion of the pacifist. I think it was last year. Wasn't it last year? You remember them in the news last year? A group of Christians in Pennsylvania. Do you remember this? The the media, very secular, made a big deal about this group of Christians because they went on a campaign against SUVs. Remember that? SUVs, sports utility vehicles. Ah, They said, listen, we need to be asking, Christians at least need to be asking the question, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus drive an SUV? And of course they were thinking of the economic and the ecological ramifications of driving these gas-guzzling beasts. You know, when that issue came up, I thought about preaching on this subject. But then I walked through our our parking lot on Sabbath, and I said, you know, it's a better part of prudence just to leave some things alone. And besides, I drive a used, very small SUV. And since this is a sermon about practicing what you preach, let's just forget it. And by the way, it gets awful, terrible, terrible gas mileage. And my, oh my, isn't that something? I must admit those Christians in Pennsylvania seemed a bit more prescient now that the gas prices here in our little village have reached almost $2 and they say it's going higher and higher and higher, $2 a gallon. Hmm. But were we to raise their query... What would Jesus do in regards to our morning subject, war and conflict and the Christian's rightful response to it? I wonder how we would answer that question. I wonder what we would say. What would Jesus do? You know, really, that's the wrong question. More practically, we should ask, what did Jesus do? You don't have to ask, what would he do? All you need to know is, what did he do? And we just saw six exhibits, did we not? I believe, ladies and gentlemen, in the light of those six exhibits, we know what Jesus would do. Would you you please write this into your study guide? Jesus, let me get mine turned over here. Jesus chose to face all conflict. Now, you have to write three words in. He chose to face all conflict as a non-retaliating, write in retaliating. Turn the other cheek. Don't you hit him back. 
You turn the other cheek. He chose to face all conflict as a non-retaliating, non-violent. Would you write in the word violent, please? Love your enemies, he said. Do good to those who have despitefully used you. All right? Non-retaliating, non-violent peacemaker. Write in peacemaker. And by the way, while your pen is still out, and he asks us to do the same. Write in same, please. Non-retaliating, non-violent peacemakers. Hey, come on, don't you and I claim to follow this same Jesus of Nazareth? Do we not make that claim? Of course. Then wouldn't it be logical that we also would be non-retaliating, non-violent peacemakers? Non-retaliating, non-violent peacemakers. By the way, those two adjectives are extremely essential. You have to have the adjectives added to peacemaker because there are some governments on earth that say we are a peacemaking government and they use retaliation and they use violence. Jesus is not speaking of that. He's speaking of non-retaliating, non-violent peacemakers. How can a Christian who embraces the teaching and the example of Jesus Christ, choose retaliation and violence to achieve potentially peaceful ends. Do the ends, do the mean, do the, yeah, do the ends justify the means? Please reflect just for a moment longer. In fact, I wish you would open your Bible. This interview with Pilate is, is, is pertinent. Uh, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 18. Just for a moment longer, reflect on, on, on our scripture portion this morning. John, chapter 18. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 33. And Pilate went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus. And he asked him, <laughs> Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Hey, hey, governor, are you under conviction? Are you under conviction? Pshaw, what do you mean, am I under conviction? Am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And then verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. Did you catch that? My kingdom is from another place. I.e., I don't do war. I don't do conflict like the world does war and the world does conflict. A Mennonite writer named uh, Thomas Craybill has written about Christ's kingdom. And the title of his book is a... It's a, it's a engaging title. He calls it the upside down kingdom. When it comes to the kingdom of Jesus, you think about it. Everything is backwards. Everything is backwards. So that in Jesus' kingdom, if you want to win, you have to, you have to lose. If you want to be great, you have to become the, the least. If you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. If you want to live in His kingdom, you have to you have to die. The upside down. Would you write that in your study guide, please? The upside down kingdom. Because as Jesus through his bloodied, swollen, he has, he has submitted himself to a brutal, brutish pummeling through the night. His lips are twice their normal size. But as he moves those lips, 
Jesus declares to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. It is from another place. Otherwise, my servants would fight. Uh, what are you saying, Pastor? What are you saying, Dwight? Does that mean there are no true Christians fighting in Iraq this morning? I didn't say that. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is that the war in Iraq is not a Christian war. Because violence and retaliation are not the methods of Christ to advance His kingdom. The war in Iraq is not the war of our religion. It is the war of our government. And it is tragic when you mistake that distinction. We have history to teach us what happens when the church forgets that its kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, but what about Romans 13? Didn't Paul say that, uh, you know, the government is God's servant? Fair point. Fair point. Let's take a look at Romans 13 just for a moment. Romans 13, let me put a, a few verses on the screen for you. Because contrary to what some Christians would have us believe, Romans 13 does not advocate that God embraces the wars of the governments. Let's just take a look at Romans 13. Romans 13, let's put uh, verse 1. Everyone, Paul is writing, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now let's go down to verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and He will commend you. Now verse 4. For He, the ruler, is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For He does not bear the sword for nothing. Aha, there it is. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Aha! You see, war punishes the wrongdoer and that is acceptable to God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not what Paul is teaching here. He is not gainsaying. He is not with one little passage, neutralizing the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? John Howard Yoder, the Anabaptist scholar, who taught at Notre Dame before his untimely death a few years ago. In his study of Romans chapter 13, let me put uh, his words on the screen from his book, The Politics of Jesus. God is not said... To create, and the emphasis is all his. God is not said to create or institute or ordain the powers that be, but only to order them, to put them in order, to sovereignly tell them where they belong, what is their place. A given government is not mandated or saved or made a channel of the will of God. It is simply lined up, used by God in his ordering of the cosmos. It does not mean, Romans 13 does not mean, that what men in government do is good behavior. Think about it. The librarian does not approve the content of the book he shelves. God did not approve morally of the brutality whereby Assyria chastised Israel. God didn't say, oh, you know, they, they, what a way to do it. He didn't approve of it at all. Yoder goes on, how strange then to make Romans 13 the classic proof for the duty of Christians to kill. The text does not say that whatever the government does or asks of its citizens is good. End quote. Now you're thinking while you're worshiping today. You're thinking 
while you're worshiping. I realize that this is a sensitive matter since we have cousins and aunts and uncles and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and even mothers and fathers in the greater Michiana region who today are a part of the occupation forces of the United States of America. Let this be clear. We are not turning to the passion of the pacifists this morning as a judgment upon them, not on your life. But we must draw near to the victim of Calvary in order to know what the mind of Christ is toward war and the war. I want to ask you something. Which side would Jesus be cheering during the evening news? You know, you watch the evening news while you're having supper, right? You're watching the evening news. Which side would Jesus be cheering? Would he be cheering the Islamic extremists who through yet another roadside bomb have blown a Humvee of U.S. soldiers into eternity? Would Jesus be cheering the heavy artillery aimed at Fallujah that collaterally takes out a household of innocent Iraqis? Set the side. Would he cheer the Palestinian suicide bomber who explodes a busload of Israeli students? Or would he cheer the Israeli gunship missile that takes out a key suspect and a handful of innocent Palestinian passers-by? Which side of the war is Jesus on? You tell me. Which side is he on? And which side of the war are his followers on? You and me. You listen to some Christians today and it seems unilateral. Jesus is always on the side of America and Israel. But does, is, is that really true? Does Jesus love America and Israel and the United Kingdom any more or less than he loves Palestine, Iraq and Afghanistan? Does he? Does he? Does he? And yet, do we find ourselves muttering after a particularly bloody attack against our own citizens? We ought to bomb the snot out of them. I have a gas caught myself. Say, wait a minute. What's the problem? Which kingdom do you belong to? Bomb them into oblivion? Is that the response of an American Christian? An Adventist Christian? My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Ray Simpson has written in his book, A Holy Island Prayer Book, these words. Ponder them. The tragedy of the second millennium was that the cross, starting with the Crusades, became an emblem of the sword. The challenge of this third millennium is to let it be what it was and what it still is in its origin, an emblem of unconditional love. The war in Iraq is no more advancing the cause of Christ on earth than the Crusades did in the Middle Ages. That's not how Christ advances His kingdom. The cross is a, is a symbol of a peacemaking God. So maybe, just maybe, even teenagers, maybe 
When we watch the evening news, we ought to hear it as a divine and passionate appeal to go to our knees and plead with God for the cessation of wanton violence and brutal retaliation. Maybe we ought to be praying instead of choosing sides. Praying. Let us not confuse nationalism and patriotism as synonyms for Christianity. Nationalism, patriotism may yet become our civil religion. Rapidly they are. But they are a deceptive and dangerous substitution for the radical peacemaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, it wasn't so that we could more efficiently load the other barrel. Turn the other cheek is radical Non-retaliation, love your enemy and pray for those who use you, is radical non-violence. Peacemaker, where is the strategy of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth gotten the Israelis and the Palestinians? They're all blind and toothless. And yet the war goes on. Where is it getting us in the Middle East? Could it be that we only grow further and further from peace? And so maybe as Christians, maybe as global Adventists, maybe instead of choosing up sides during the evening news, maybe we ought to hear every tragic headline as a divine call to go to our knees and plead for the cessation of wanton violence and brutal retaliation. My kingdom is not of this world. Ultimately, my dear friends, we must never forget that we are citizens of a higher kingdom and we have a greater allegiance. And in the event that the kingdom of Christ clashes with the kingdom of the Republicans or the kingdom of the Democrats or the kingdom of the United States of America, in the event it clashes, then we ought to with holy thunder like Peter cry out, we ought to obey God rather than man. We may have to yet adopt the confession of the psalmist. This is your last line. Write it in, please. The psalmist, one, Psalm 120, verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's okay, my friend. You may be all alone where you live or where you work. Or even sometimes where you worship, you may be all alone speaking for peace and everybody else is chanting war, war, war. It's okay. You stand alone then. You be unafraid to stand as Jesus did. I am for peace. Are you for peace? Like Jesus was for peace? Are you for peace? Let me end with a reading. In a memoir of the years before World War II, Pierre Van Possen tells of an act of humiliation by Nazi stormtroopers who had seized an elderly rabbi and dragged him to headquarters. In the far end of the same room, two colleagues were beating another Jew to death, but the captors of the rabbi decided to have some fun with him, and so they stripped him naked, just like in Baghdad. They stripped him naked and commanded that he preach the sermon he had prepared for the coming Sabbath in the synagogue. Preach! The rabbi asked if he could wear his prayer shawl. 
And the Nazis, grinning, agreed. It added to the joke. The trembling rabbi proceeded to deliver in a raspy voice his sermon on what it means to walk humbly before God, all the while being poked and prodded by the hooting Nazis, and all the while hearing the last cries of his neighbor at the end of the room. Philip Yancey, commenting on this story, writes, When I read the Gospel accounts of the imprisonment, torture, and execution of Jesus... I thought and I think of that naked rabbi standing humiliated in a police station. I still cannot fathom the indignity, the shame endured by God's Son on earth. Stripped naked, flogged, spat on, struck in the face, garlanded with thorns. Messiah, huh? Great, let's hear your prophecy. Wham! Who hits you, huh? Thunk! Come on, tell us. Spit it out, Mr. Prophet. For a Messiah, you don't, you don't know much, do you? Oh, you say you're a king. Hey, Captain, get a load of this. We have a regular king here, don't we? Well, then let's all kneel down before his honor. What's this? A king without a crown? Oh, that will never do. Here, Mr. King, we'll fix you a crown. We will crunch. How's that? A little crooked? Oh, I'll fix that. Hey, oh, still, my, look how modest we are. Well, how about a robe then? Something to cover that bloody mess on your back. What happened? Did your majesty have a little tumble? My kingdom is not of this world. They strike you on one cheek. Turn the other. Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And remember, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children, the children of God. Oh, Father, we mean that. It's very short, but dear God, there is so much in that single plea. Grant us the peace that is yours. Oh God, that peacemaker you've been needing in that marriage, in this marriage, am I it? That peacemaker you've been needing in that office, this office, place, am I supposed to be it? That peacemaker you've been wanting in the inner city, am I to be that peacemaker? Oh, Father, please, in the name of Jesus Christ, make us like our Master. Amen.